Good morning, everyone. You're very welcome to this event. Um, we are the forum, and we're running this event in conjunction with the LSE Festival. Um, so first of all, I, I want to extend my sincere thanks to everyone involved in the LSE Festival. They've been absolutely marvellous, and uh, I can't thank them enough for all the help that they've given. They make everything look much more professional, and it's, it's much appreciated. Um, so the Forum for Philosophy is the organization that I'm representing here today, and we are a non-profit organization. We put on events, much like this one, once a week, usually in the evening time, so it's unusual for me to be telling you good morning. Um, and they're always free, they're open to all, and uh, you're very welcome to come to any of them. Um, we do this because kind people like yourselves donate to us, um, and we couldn't do it otherwise. So uh, if you wish to help us promote philosophy in public and creating a space for discussion, do please consider visiting our website where you can uh, donate something to us. You know, that's more than enough for me. Um, this is being recorded for a podcast. Do bear that in mind if you uh, ask a question. And um, do wait for a mic to find you um, when you do ask a question, just so your voice can be heard by everyone in the room and on the podcast. Um, I think that's, as I say, enough for me. Please join me in welcoming our fabulous panel for, for today. Thank you. Hello. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Good. I'm Shahida Bari. I'm one of the fellows of the forum, and I'll be chairing this event today, um, which I'm sure you know is called Brave New World. Um, I, I was trying to think about examples of bioengineering and bioenhancement um, for this introduction, and there were a million, <laughs> uh, as it turns out. We, this is the brave new world in which we live in. Um, but I was thinking particularly about the story uh, recently about the Chinese scientist, um, He Jiang Qiu, I think the name is, um, who's been gene editing uh, the twin girls in China and has got into awful trouble slash also lots of interest, um, it seems to me. And we seem to be at that frontier. I think we, the story is that he was editing um, the embryos for um, HIV to prevent them from catching H HIV, but there are other repercussions of editing that particular gene. But that is a dazzling frontier of the, the, the world we're living in and all the, the terrors that come with it too, I think. Um, so to discuss, um, we have this event. Um, we've got lots of questions. Some of the ones that I've posed to you are this idea that we live in an age of utopian technologies, um, and if we do, um, we, how far do we deploy that to, uh, to enable human being? Um, we can uh, manufacture man mechanical limbs for amputees, but should we also chemically engineer happiness for depressives, um, from uh, modified babies to genetically engineered food and the fluoride in our water? Um, I want us to try and probe what seems to me the major bioethical questions of our time. And also, of course, as a representative of the philosophy, um, the Forum for Philosophy at the LSE, I think there are loads of philosophical questions that these, um, this frontier poses to us as well. Um, are we morally obliged to engineer this utopia, or are things best left to nature? So to help us discuss, we have Professor Richard Ashcroft, who is a professor of bioethics at Queen Mary University of London. Um, I, don't, I have no idea where that is, Richard. I say that being one of Richard's colleagues. Um, and you teach medical law and ethics there. And among other things, you're also a fellow of the Alan Turing Institute. 
Emily Jackson is Professor of Law at the London School of Economics. Um, no idea where that is either. She teaches medical law here, and she's a member of the British Medical Association uh, Medical Ethics Committee. And Professor David Healy, he's a clinical professor of psychiatry at Bangor University. He's written widely And about... you really have no idea what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I'm hoping I might be illuminated. He's um, written widely about adolescent depression, schizophrenia, uh, and the increased prescription of antidepressants more generally. So I'm sure you'll agree they're wonderfully well-equipped to navigate us through this topic. So, Richard, I w I'd like us to start with you, um, because I know you work on this idea of the bio-utopia. What do we mean by some of these terms, bioethics and this idea of a bio-utopia? What would it look like? All right, so bioethics is a field of inquiry about the ethical, legal, social and policy aspects of medicine, public health and the life sciences. Um, and it's a field rather than a discipline in that lots of different disciplines contribute to it. Philosophy, theology, law, the social sciences, uh, and indeed the medical and natural sciences as well. Um, I'm a philosopher of a sort. I trained in history and philosophy of science, uh, so I bring that to it. And the reason why I think it's interesting to think about utopia in this context is, first of all, as Shahida was saying, there are lots of technologies in medicine, uh, public health, which are, uh, have the potential to change who we are, change society, and at least on their face, change them for the better. And it's interesting to think about what better means in that context. And the other reason why I find it interesting to think about utopia in this context is this idea of uh, handling these problems through an academic discipline and through institutions around that academic discipline. And the idea that we can come to conclusions about what we ought to do through reasonable discussion amongst interested parties. Somewhat like this and somewhat like this. I'm gesturing at the audience for the benefit of the podcast. And um, that you can somehow do this without getting into political conflict. You can somehow do this by being reasonable. And I'm interested in what being reasonable might mean. What does, what does it look like when you think about this notion of a bio-utopia? Give me some concrete examples of what we might envisage. Well, so we're here to talk about brave new worlds, and so that will remind many of you of Aldous Huxley's novel, Brave New World, which is um, a complicated text, uh, just as H.G. Wells's texts, uh, and right back to Thomas More in the early 16th century, the original utopia. Um, most people read uh, Huxley as a kind of satire. Um, it's also possible to read it as a warning, a sort of warn this is what the future might be like, a sort of dystopia. But there are features of it which could be considered genuinely utopian, that they are genuinely ways of thinking about a better way to live as a society. And there were people at Huxley's time who, with strongly eugenicist ideas who thought that quite a lot of what Huxley was talking about was fair enough, really, and that's what we ought to do. And there are people today who have similar notions. So that's, uh, that's quite important to, to think about um, uh, as an instance of a bio-utopia. The other 
resonance of Brave New Worlds is where does Huxley get the phrase from? He gets it from The Tempest of Shakespeare. Uh, oh, Brave New World that has such people in it. And I'm restraining myself from gesturing at the audience again. <laughs> um, so the thought of a bio-utopia is roughly this, that for about 400 years we thought of improving our lives and improving society through social reform, through education, through legal change, through constitutional design. And at some point in the post-war period, a lot of people would point to the fall of communism, perhaps, um, people began to give up on this idea that social transformation could be successful uh, and wouldn't necessarily lead to disaster. And in a way, what's happened is that we have individualized the notion of utopia so that we build utopia one person at a time through improving each one of us through the quantified self, through uh, medication, through uh, fitness training. I'm slightly carrying an injury this morning after overdoing it in the gym. Um, through uh, monitoring one's own behavior, behavior change. So by individualizing, psychologizing, biologizing, we get a better society one individual at a time. And I find fascinating the thought that what we should do is change the person rather than change society. And I think that is central to most utopian imagination around the life sciences at the moment. It takes a medical model and thinks of changing the individual body and mind. Thank you. I, it's interesting that, um, that one of the sources for a lawyer, a scientist, uh, when thinking about a bio-utopia is, is fiction. We go to science fiction or and usually dystopian, we talk about dystopian fiction rather than utopian, I think, more often, um, belongs to a literary category. But I wonder um, whether the writing, the literary writing is imagining a future and how far we are living in that future. Can you detect the realisation of that science fiction? There's... Um Quite a lot of scientists, when they do decide to write fiction, are writing fiction in the science fictional or utopian vein uh, as a way of working out some ideas about what they think they're doing. But there's another sort of fiction, I'm going to take your question in a different direction than maybe you're expecting, which is the grant application. <laughs> grant applications are proposals for what we are going to do if you're kind enough to give us all the money that we're asking for and on a promise that if you give us that money, something marvellous will happen. Um, my favourite subgenre is the pathway to impact. Uh, sorry, that's one for the academics in the room. Where we promise not only will we discover some interesting facts about the world or some new legal in institutions that we could make, um, but this will actually have transformative impact. And make a difference to society at large and, and there will be social benefit to the public money usually that's being invested or in the case of biotechnology the finance capital that's invested will provide a return on investment which again depends on telling a particular set of stories about what your investment will allow me to do um, so there is a sense in which all scientific work involves a work of imagination 
and an attempt to persuade the reader, who may be the funder or the investor or the public, that go with me and we will make a better world together. Thank you. It's nice that we, we're, we're talking about the imagination um, as well as science, um, but let's bring in regulation. <laughs> this is my segue to you, Emily. Um, uh, as someone working in a law department, how have you been thinking about bio-enhancement and its implications? Um, I'm not sure how I've been thinking about it. It has been particularly distinctively legal. Um, but just a couple of things that, um, that, that I wanted to, to say. One is, um, I think I'm really conscious that in a lot of the, the debates there are about enhancement, we tend to be really dazzled by exciting new technologies, um, maybe to miss out that there's a whole lot of mundane stuff that um, is at least as important, if not more so. So just a couple of examples. People get very excited about um, genetic testing and its capacity to predict the future, um, that it's predictive rather than diagnostic, and what does that mean? Because employers will want to know and insurers will want to know or future spouses will want to know about your susceptibility to ill health. And what we miss there is that whether or not you smoke and whether or not you're poor predicts your future health really pretty accurately, um, but obviously it's not as dazzling or as, exci or as exciting as, um, as, as some new technological advancement. Another really quick example, when um, after the birth of Dolly the sheep, um, people got really, really excited about the possibility of human clones being produced. And I remember Anne McLaren, who was a really wonderful developmental biologist who was um, pivotal to the Warnock Committee, just saying, well, nature creates clones identical twins are clones and we don't think they're a threat to humanity and so I think there's a real, real importance to not be so bedazzled as sometimes um, commentators are um, in relation to um, what is an enhancement which I, which I think is a really critical question yeah. um, I mean there are some things which would be straightforwardly an enhancement. If you're an athlete and you take a pill and it can make you run faster, <clears throat> then clearly you're enhanced. But other sorts of things that are sometimes talked about as enhancements, I think it's, it's much less clear whether that they would be an enhancement. For example, perfect memory, um, if we could recall everything that had ever happened to us in excruciating detail, I think that would be really, really hard to live with. I'm not sure that, that would be an enhancement. Um, and similarly, I think, uh, particularly if you're talking about biomedical enhancements that work on the brain, sort of uh, biopharmaceutical enhancements, um, most drugs have side effects or unintended side effects. So you might have something that looks like it's enhancing you, but maybe it isn't. So a really obvious example there is something like dexamphetamine, which has been taken by the US military because it, it stops you getting tired, it prevents fatigue. Now that sounds like it might be really good in the military, might also be really good for somebody doing really long operations, for surgeons to be taking it. But one of the other consequences of dexamphetamine is it leads to overconfidence, which is the last thing you want in your surgeon or in a fighter <laughs> pilot. So I think that question of what an enhancement is is also really, really critical. Um, Finally, I think, um, just to, to circle back, I think um, one of the concerns that people often raise about enhancements and transhumans and transhumans, <coughs> the concern which I think has, has, has real weight, but, but, but also I find slightly irritating, which is the, the worry about distributional justice and how what the future holds is a world where we have all these super enhanced rich people um, who live long, live much longer than anybody else and have all these um, 
all these additional uh, capacities. And, of course, that's a concern, of course, that's a worry, but we, we really need to look at the health inequalities that we have anyway. So if you are a girl born in Kensington or Chelsea, your uh, average life expectancy, I think, is now 89.8. It's really high. If you're a homeless woman in London, your life expectancy is 43. Wow. So the idea that enhancements are going to lead to some radical change between the haves and the have-nots, I think, is also makes us miss uh, that we've got haves and have-nots without yeah. enhancement. Yeah. That's a fascinating idea, I think, that... Um, the, 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 the language of the bio-utopia and bio-enhancement is dazzling. It's like a smokescreen, I guess. Um, it's the brand-new toy, right, um, that makes you forget what's going on outside your window. And the idea that inequality might be a bigger driver for or the distributive, what you call distributive justice or the inequality of lifestyles might be a greater indicator of well-being than enhancement. But I, I want to pick up on that last point about access to bio-enhancement that mm. I'm remembering at the end of Yuval Noah Harari's book, the first one, um, Sapiens, where he imagines the super rich, I think he means basically Elon Musk, uploading his consciousness forever into, a, a, into the cosmos and how immortality will be available for the super, super rich, but not for all of us. But I wonder then, uh, there are ethical questions there, but also legal questions about how we make the distribution of this bioethical utopia more equal, do you think? Yes. Um, I think one of the, the interesting things about um, extreme prolonged life expectancy, um, if that becomes an option, is it's not going to arrive overnight with some pill that suddenly means that you can live a really, really long time. It's going to be through incremental um, developments in, for example, regenerative medicines, which means that um, you can cure diseases which would otherwise kill people. And um, even if we, we might think the idea of Elon Musk living forever doesn't sound, well, the rest of us <laughs> sort of shuffle off uh, <laughs> in the normal time frame, even if that doesn't sound very appealing, the reality is that we're, who is going to say, well, we don't want to cure cancer because it might lead to some people living a really long time. So I think enhancement is, gen is probably going to happen in, in incremental ways, in the ways it already has. I mean, life expectancy doubled over the course of the 20th century. And things like vaccinations enhance us, the contraceptive pill enhances us. So I think the, the sort of incremental change rather than some sudden um, change where Elon Musk is going to live forever. Yeah. Richard, did you want to come in there? Yeah, I'm, the, I agree with what Emily says. Um, there's another register here which I think is intriguing, which is two things. One is the thought that those of us who might live to ever will effectively be the Elon Musks, um, which is a particular kind of person with a particular vision of what human life is, uh, not necessarily one that I would want to sign up to. And the other is, well, what is it then if... if what is it then to lead a life? What is, what is it that is being done if you are uploaded? So a lot of these utopian imaginaries posit a kind of vision of the human which directly reflexes back on where, the way we live now. It's a commentary on the way we live now or a critique of the way we live now. Some of that which is uh, something that we can do interesting critical work with and some of it, it is frankly horrifying. So a lot of the enhancements that people like to promote are, when you boil it down, essentially ways of making people better functionaries within the capitalist economy. They live longer, they sleep less, they work harder. Um, 
and, you, and, and the argument for them is much the same argument as the argument for private schooling, say. It's, yeah, it's an unjust world, and I accept that, but I have to do the best for my children, or I have to do the best for myself, because uh, otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm being unfair to my nearest and dearest somehow. And it's, it's, it's the way these ideas fit together in a, you, you can put them back into social philosophy as we understand it now and say, okay, what are you actually saying? Translate that back into your actual vision of the way we live now and say, what do you mean by it? Emily? Yeah, I mean, I, I start by something which is said there and something he said earlier as well, which, um, I mean, education is very obviously an enhancement, isn't it? It's an enhancement we're already familiar mm. with. And um, with what Richard said at the outset, I think um, very much fits within the, the, the modern idea of education, which is one I really regret, which is the idea that it's a private good, yeah. um, that the person who is educated benefits and profits through that, through going out into the world with a greater um, earning capacity. And that seems to me to miss something really important about education, which is that it's a public good. And we all benefit from um, the population um, being educated. It isn't something that you can privatise and monetise. There is one version of the, of the bio-enhancement debate which, which directly lit, picks up on that. And it says, OK, well, that, that some of these enhancements do generate public goods. So there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of the debate which is about so-called moral enhancement, which is talking about this idea that we're not very good at being moral. Um, I don't know about you, I'm not very good at being moral. Um, I try very hard and, and fail repeatedly. But the, um, the other bit is not only we're not very consistent or diligent in our morality, our morality is somehow wrong, uh, e.g. the ways in which our current moral consciousness seems to subvert our attempts to do something about climate change. So if we could somehow change our constitution, our mental, biological, physical constitution, so that we would be more moral in that sense, more cautious about things that are dangerous for the environment, then that would be the solution to climate change, for instance. Um, which I find is interesting. But again, it's like saying, well, you know, am I, are we actually satisfied that we are defective in that way? And who is the author of the proposals that we are supposed to be following if, if we change our conduct in the way that these kind of writers like to think? But in that situation, are we, are we in danger of overthinking things? I mean, academics are always <laughs> in danger of overthinking things, but God forbid we would overthink things. But what I mean by that is that, um, yes, uh, we might have a problem with this idea that um, somebody decides that we're not moral enough and they put something in our... This is a Superman, Lex Luthor fantasy. Somebody puts something in our water to make us behave better or to work harder or to... You know, there's a kind of collective end that we might be put towards and who makes that decision. All of those are ethical problems. Um, but what about the idea that somebody is a very... People are generally unhappy or they're... Um, uh, there, lots of us have sports injuries and that we could fix those things. I, I, you're the two ethicists, so I want to put you on the spot, right? Do we not have an ethical responsibility to enhance well-being if we can? Uh, <laughs> they're overthinking. I suppose, I suppose <laughs> yes. But I would say um, it's not clear that you are necessarily enhancing well-being by giving people a pill. 
um, because there are all sorts of things that pills do that are likely to not enhance you very much at all. So um, I think, and this goes back to what Richard was saying earlier, that you might um, make people happier by making the world a different place rather than acting on the individual. Mm. And I want to know what happiness is. So you have Professor Paul Dolan uh, here at LSE, and I find his work really interesting uh, by his new book. But... um, but there needs to be some kind of sense of what this well-being is, what this happiness is. Um, and that's the part that seems to get left out. Actually, a lot of what is done in the name of enhancement is um, its a kind of economist's vision of happiness, where it's the satisfaction of your personal preferences, and you get better at satisfying your personal preferences. So again, the public good gets left out. Yeah, overthinking, I think. No, I'm joking. Um, I'm going to drag um, David in a moment, but just one last question for you, Emily, because I know you were speak. You, I think you prefaced your comments by saying you, that you were, you were, you, as an eth- someone working in, med- in legal ethics as well, you were thinking about the repercussions of a bioenhanced world. But I wonder, within uh, law schools and amongst the legal community, are they beginning to set up? <coughs> The legislation, the policy, are they thinking about how to regulate a, a brave new world and what the repercussions of it will be? I think, I mean, I think the issue is that the things that are described as enhancements um, are things like medicines, which are regulated in a particular way, or um, other, which, but the regulations don't apply just to things that you might call enhancements, they apply to medicines more generally. So, yes, but, but at the same time, as well, that's what I meant about it isn't just. There isn't some magic pill that's going to come with enhancement. It's going to be all sorts of different medical treatments, which, of course, are subject to regulation to do with consent and to do with safety and to do with efficacy. Not all of those things um, necessarily work all the time. Uh, but, but, but there are mechanisms, but I don't think there's some super regulator which is thinking how we should, how should we um, deal with enhancement. It's a bit like genome editing. Mm. There's, a, there's a body, the HFEA, which regulates um, doing things to embryos, and it's licensed the Francis Crick Institute to do a research project on genome editing on embryos. And at the moment, it's against the law to do genome editing for clinical purposes. That might change in the future, but not in the near future. So there are bodies that are working on this, but in the context of working on other things as well. Yeah. So in another part of my life, I'm very interested in artificial intelligence. And if you look at how governments and policymakers and legislators are trying to govern AI you see an awful lot of activity and an awful lot of head-scratching. They, they, it, it's almost as if legal frameworks can't catch it. Um, and I think that's possibly where we're going to be with genome editing as well. Yeah, I think that's very interesting, that it is going to fall into a terrain, a brave new world that we're, we're, we're still going to have to map. Um, David, let me drag you in here. Okay. Because at the moment it sounds like... Um, uh, medics are living in the Wild West, that they're doing um, things that are um, extraordinary and new and there's lots of anxiety. Give me a sense of what the general attitude is towards ideas of bioenhancement and bioengineering from those working within the medical profession. Okay, let me try and tease things a part of it. Uh, <clears throat> broadly speaking, the traditional approach is we don't enhance. We poison and we mutilate and we shock. And if that enhances in some way, it's because it's been done to a person who's got a disease that's going to kill them or disable them. And you're trying to balance the risks of the illness versus 
whatever it is that we're doing. We don't enhance per se. Doctors have been constrained in that framework from roughly the 1840s through to the 1980s. Doctors as such aren't terribly nice people. <laughs> the framework helped control a thing that actually began, or really took off around the 1840s also, which was hucksterism, which is linked into the, uh, uh, you know, the media, the advertising industry, propaganda generally, uh, caught by references to Harley Street here. But quite aside from the fact that loads of doctors are into the business of trying to make a quick buck off you, you know, uh, the medical profession is not awfully ethical or things like that. The flower of the profession uh, eliminated people who were who had lives not worth living and did so quite happily and will do so again if we've got the wrong frameworks in place. Richard said something about things changed in so the 1980s, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, probably a little bit before the 1980s, uh, I'd say, which is when we moved from a world where doctors generally and people in healthcare moved from a healthcare world to a health services industry. The focus switched from treating your heart attack, which we did very uncertainly, or your stroke or whatever, to treating your risk factors, your cholesterol levels, your blood pressure, your glucose levels. I mean, treating you when you weren't ill, giving you disease in the sense of dis-ease rather than disease that was going to kill you that you actually had now and that had to actually be managed. And that's where the pharmaceutical industry and the medical um, a device industry and these things make their money these days. And that plays into doctors' sense of, well, you know, these look like diseases and we're going to make money out of them, so we're not really going to complain. It also plays into the fact that there's technologies. I mean, a pill is two things. It's a chemical technology, but it's also information. And the information used to come from the lived experience of doctors, and patients. Nowadays, it comes from controlled trials. It's engineered. The information's engineered. The controlled trials yield data that no one gets access to. No doctor ever sees. The regulators never see it. No one sees it. In court, if there's a legal case, if you've got an adverse event on a drug, neither you nor your lawyer can get access to the data from the clinical trials that are done on any device or any pill. The literature, the academic literature in the BMJ and the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine is ghostwritten. Donald Trump talks about fake news the whole time and we laugh at him. The greatest concentration of fake news on the planet centers on the pills your doctor will give you. Doctors for 40 years have been consuming almost nothing but fake news. So what you got, I mean, Every so often, a technology comes along, like triple therapy for AIDS, that clearly works, and people adopt it, and will always do so. For the most part, when you're told that things work, and they're great and wonderful, like the SSRIs. I mean, I was around when the SSRIs came on stream, and there's a great talk about brave new world, we're going to engineer the new human being. And, well, the entire literature behind that was ghostwritten. There's no access to the data. We now have one-sixth of the population in the UK hooked to these drugs. They're causing birth defects in any of the women who are on them while they're pregnant. They're causing all sorts of other problems. And you're not hearing about this. This isn't an enhanced world. This is a, a diminished world. 
But you've got to bear in mind is, for the most part, the bio stuff that gets done isn't breakthrough. Uh, the, tech, the techniques we have that are the most powerful are the behavioral techniques, the ones that will shape your mind to think that the latest drug, which is inferior to the older drug we had, which is also cheaper, uh, are actually great, wonderful breakthrough. You need to have it, and you're going to be a new man or a new woman or new whoever. This just isn't the case. I'm getting the sense here that nobody on this panel wants me to take the red pill. Um, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, uh, I think I want to ask well, I'll, you... I'll take... I'll <laughs> move the red pill a little bit more towards you, which is this. I disagree with um, the argument actually put forward uh, in terms of uh, social inequalities, you know, the key thing. If we just put that right, everything will be okay. Up till 200 years ago, we had clean air and good food and less inequality than we had now, and people died earlier. So the medical techniques that came on stream have actually made a difference to life expectancy. It's not social programs that have made the difference to life expectancy. But we're at a point where life expectancy is now falling. It's fallen in the United States in absolute terms. This is not just falling behind the rest of the world. It has actually fallen. So we're at a point, I mean, the key thing I would say in this is, uh, yeah, the reason it's fallen is because people are taking more pills than ever before. In the 80s, people were on average taking one or two pills for a short period of time. Now, 50% of the population uh, over the age of 45 are taking three or more pills, and close to 50% of the population over the age of 65 are taking five or more pills. And we know that this is going to reduce your life expectancy. So, it, just one quick more point, which is it brings up an issue of choice. We've got to have discrimination. We've got to have some kind of discretion and that's what we've lost since the 1980s. Richard, you wanted to come in a moment ago. I'm not completely convinced. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's lots of what you say that I agree with, um, but the claim that most of the medical progress in terms of increased life expectancy was to do with medical practice, I'm not sure I agree with. I think the, the standard view at least as I was taught it, was that it, a lot of life expectancy improvements over the 19th and early 20th century were to do with better sanitation, better housing, uh, clean air regulations and things like that. But I, I mean, I would also stand up for quite a lot of actual medical practice as done by doctors. So I, I, think, I think I'd want to tease apart your analysis a bit more. Um, well, did you want to come in, Emily? Okay, no, no, no. Um, let's be awfully clear. People's life expectancy didn't necessarily improve because doctors improved them, giving them pills. That's exactly the point that I'm not making. But it does hinge on understanding the basic mechanisms. Goodwill and being nice to people and giving them better houses and things like that is not what improved life expectancy. There's a Thomas McKeown book about all this, which is just plain wrong in terms of the historical detail. In terms of getting rid of things like TB, sure, people got involved and cleaned up New York and things like that and reduced the rates at which, at which people were picking up TB, but based on an understanding that comes from bacteriology about what was causing TB and what needed to be done to make a difference. 
So you've got to have scientific understanding of what's going on. So we have made um, an advance in terms of understanding more. And the key thing is, at the end of the day, for all of you here, is are you, being, are, are you really learning more? And you know, the way you find out that is if you challenge the propaganda you're hearing, and if you find that people get pretty hostile to you, that's the point that you're going to begin to learn things. The, 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 this word propaganda, we should, I'm, I'm using air quotes around it, um, I should say, for our podcast <laughs> listeners. But uh, the, uh, this propaganda is not, you, you don't just mean um, uh, well-meaning but slightly dim doctors. You mean big pharma, right, that is behind the, the, the promotion of certain kinds of drugs. But I want to ask you this question. Is there a way of, is there a way of rescuing this bio-utopia from the hands of big pharma? Well, um, yeah, the bio-utopia thing is not part of medicine. So you're asking me, uh, you know, from a healthcare point of view, you know, it hasn't ever actually been part of medicine. The, the, the traditional task was, was helping people who come to you with a problem, with a, a disease, and saying to the people who are just diseased in the sense of, you know, unhappy, that look, you know, the good news is you don't have a, 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 a disease and you don't want to spend too much time with me or with us because actually if you don't have anything seriously wrong with you, we are likely to kill you. Emily, what do you think of that? Because but I asked partly because your discussion at the beginning of our conversation, when you were pointing up inequality as the driver of um, a biodystopia, I guess, the solutions to that are hard. They're um, tackling poverty. They're tackling global health. They're um, they're hard social and political questions. And the pill is easy, and it might be quicker. I mean, how do we square that? Um, I, think, I think you have to do hard things. I think it's absolutely right that the idea of a quick fix is, is really appealing to people. Um, but it's a bit like um, education. It's, um, it's hard. It's not easy. There isn't a quick fix. You can't take a pill to become educated, to learn a language. Um, it's difficult. Um, and I think tackling inequality is, is difficult. But it, it, it seems to me quite clear that... Poverty is a really accurate predictor of poor future life chances, and we should care about that. Yeah. I, I think sometimes it is easy. I think we've all become terribly Protestant on this panel, <laughs> and I'm making it. Um, sometimes the, the path to happiness is red wine and dancing and kissing at parties. <laughs> and so, why not? Well, and if, and if, if that's a sort of technology, if you want, and so is taking a pill. If, if taking a pill could achieve similar ends, yeah. then perhaps. The, the problem with taking a pill is it's quite a boring thing to do. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't speak to a, 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 a way of life and, and a way of being with others that's congenial and sociable. And I think some of the ways in which we might think about bio-utopia is to put the, is to put the fleshly life back into the mm. picture rather than just thinking about it as, a, as fixing a, a sort of slightly wonky computer program, which is how some people do think of you know, what's wrong with us, you know, the behavioural interventions in, mm -hmm. in psychology and so on. CBT as, as, the way, as the way to make everyone happy again. But, yeah, I think sometimes... Some solutions are easy. Some easy is good sometimes. David, you were going to come in. Yeah, just, just to make things a little bit more 
complex. <laughs> I'm not saying that inequality is a good thing. It's clearly a problem, and if you're poor and things like that, you're probably not going to live as long as people who are wealthy. That's on average true. What's also on average true is that a greater intensity of healthcare, whether it's from pills or vaccines or surgical operations, kills, whether you're rich are poor. So there's an issue about somehow finding a middle ground. Let me put it also like this. One of the few treatments we've had since the 1960s that actually saves lives has been triple therapy for AIDS. On the back of that, one of the most wonderful moral and ethical and political things we did was to campaign for access to triple therapy for people all over the world. This was one of the most marvelous things we have ever done collectively. And people now are on the access to medicines bandwagon trying to campaign for access to all sorts of other drugs for people all the way around the world, and they're going to kill them because access to medicine, if you're not thinking, is access to polypharmacy, which will kill you. So hopefully you're beginning to get out of what I'm saying is the black and the white, the good and the bad, the enhanced, the, the diminished, isn't a simple equation. There's got to be choice, there's got to be responsibility, and old style healthcare, the key word in all of that, was care. Mm. Let's put some more, I'm going to follow your leader, but let's put some more grayscale into the discussion because I think one of the problems in thinking about a topic of this magnitude is that the scale is so different at each end. Um, so we have really different forms of bio-utopian intervention. We have, you know, I suggested the fluoride in our water for our teeth and the prosthetic limbs and then the gene editing story I started with. Is this a matter of, is this a question of drawing a line about what is acceptable? Is there a particular line in the sand we can say that this is okay and it's okay for us to tamper with our bodies and our and our well-being in this way biologically but this is not okay or is it the question that once you start engaging in this kind of work that it is a slippery slope and that one thing will lead to lead to something much worse i think we're quite bad at predicting but quite good at telling stories and um so I think what's important in, these, in thinking about these technologies is to put them back into social context and then work out stories about them that we can share with each other and, and say, yes, we think this would be a good thing to do, or no, we wouldn't. I don't think it's as simple as, as drawing red lines, because we see what happens when people draw red lines. Some people will cross them and other people will tie themselves to them and refuse to move. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't get us very far. Yeah. Emily? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's hard to, hard to say there's some line that, that you can draw and not cross because it, it, the answer really has to be it depends. It depends on yeah. the context. Um, so one of the things that I mentioned as, as an enhancement, um, the contraceptive pill has, has transformed women's lives. Yeah. Um, and, and that doesn't seem to me to be... a problematic intervention it interferes with nature it changes um, it, it changes women's natural propensity to have lots and lots of children um, and it seems to me to be a good thing but there are, might be other things that are, are very different from that yeah I wonder what the best case scenario is the contraceptive pill is such a good example I think Emily of that because it's relatable to so many of us but if you imagine a world where 
of benevolent people, benevolent scientists and billionaires funding their research and um, well-intended people. What's the, what does the best-case scenario of a, of a bio-utopia look like? I'm going to ask you that, Richard, because I know you've been imagining this possible bio-utopia. What's the best-case scenario for us? I'm going to ask David for the worst-case scenario, because I feel like he might have an idea. <laughs> well, that, that gives David a much easier question, because we, we all know that at the present state of the culture, um, we're all very, very good at dreaming up dystopias. You can't move for dystopias in the bookshops, um, although, pleasingly, I hear that young adult fiction had a drop in sales of about 30% last year, because maybe they're just getting fed up of being sold dystopias. Um, the utopian <coughs> idea, I don't know. I guess I, all I can say is, I, I, is point to one of my favourites, which is Ma Michael Moorcock's Dances at the End of Time um, trilogy, which is literally set at the end of the universe. And everybody has perfectly plastic identities uh, in terms of their physical embodiment and, and what they're able to do and where they're able to go, go in space and time. But they have personalities, they're real, they interact with each other, they have hopes and fears, and, and they're just, they're able to, to go beyond their limitations in, in creative and, and enjoyable ways. And another example that people like is, is Ian Banks's culture novels, um, where again, uh, people live recognizably human lives, but, but in much more flexible and, and creative ways. David, I'm not going to ask you what the worst case scenario is because I feel like you've covered that a little bit. But I want to know what the signs are. If you think that we're heading into a bio dystopia, what are the telltale signs? I didn't say we're heading into a bio dystopia. I think where you're being so. You're, I mean, hucksterism has gained control again. It was held in check for 150 years or so, but it's gained control again, and that's what you need to recognize. Every so often, things are going to come along, and CRISPR, gene editing, looks like it's going to be a very powerful thing, uh, but it's going to be born into a world where the propaganda techniques, the advertising techniques we have are so comprehensive, it's going to be rather difficult for people to work out what's real and what's not. That said, when real breakthroughs like the oral contraceptive and things like that have come along, people have usually been able to work them out. At least women have usually been able to work out what the real breakthroughs are. <laughs> Men are a bit slower on these things. Well, uh, Emily, you're a quick woman. Um, uh, that's, that's my segue to you, Emily. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in trying to draw out some of our examples. And the contraceptive pill is a great one. But the other one I was thinking of was um, cochlear implants and the anxiety in the deaf community. I think there was a story, I think there's often this story, but a story a couple of years ago about um, a deaf couple whose child, they wanted their child to, to be deaf, to be part of their community. And it occurred to me that we have an ethical obligation, perhaps not just to enable the perfectibility of human beings, but perhaps there is something about allowing imperfect human beings too. Um, yes, I mean, I thought that's, a really, that's a really difficult um, example. But yes, absolutely. Um, we, we all have imperfections and... Um, and unhappinesses, and those are part of what make us human just as much as happiness. Um, and I think, so I think the, the idea of a quick fix to make the world better, um, we have to recognise that actually, we, in order to be able to empathise with others and to, to understand others' vulnerability, we all need to be imperfect and to have 
difficult experiences. Um, I'm not sure I have the answer to the cochlear impasse yeah. um, because I think that's really, really tough. Um, what you would want is the child to be able to make the decision for themselves, but that's obviously very difficult in that case. Yeah. I think one thing that's really interesting about the post-human and transhumanism debate is that there's a tendency in it to actually encourage us to think about diverse ways of being human, diverse kinds of good life. Um, I think here of, of the neurodiversity movement around autism. So is, autism for, for neurodiverse people is not a disability, it's a different way of being human and just as good and with, with its own challenges but also its own pleasures and possibilities. Uh, I think the same can apply to uh, being deaf. Um, and, and to, to other kinds of things that people typically label as disabilities but, but aren't always. Yeah. The, the, the other tendency, the counter tendency, is to think that there is one best way of being human and this will allow, allow us to achieve it. So there's way, it's a bit like the early, the early internet debates where for some people the early internet was opening up massive new freedoms and for others, well, here we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me continue on that quickly, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a key thing that I think that perhaps falls out of what we just uh, actually heard there from Richard, which is in the mid-1970s through, through the 80s, the idea of operational criteria appear in healthcare. And a lot of healthcare these days is uh, you know, prescribing and behaving by numbers in response to numbers of different sorts. Rather than making a judgment call that this is a malignant hypertension that needs treating rather than a benign hypertension which an old man like David Eby has and maybe he needs to have to get blood to his brain, you know, you treat every hypertension. Same kind of way we moved into an operational criteria world where you can have autism on one side which is a terrible disease which is increasing in frequency. It's not quite as epidemic maybe as you often hear but it's certainly increasing in frequency and we know certain things that increase the rates at which it happens and then you've got neurodiversity and everybody using operational criteria which involve getting rid of judgment calls people can define themselves as having autistic spectrum disorder or saying they're neurodiverse this is rather like gnosticism in a sense it's Christianity without the man nailed to the cross. Traditional medicine was helping people who are nailed to a cross, getting back to something like a reasonable life. Um, let's get your judgment in. I feel like um, there are going to be some ardent and piercing questions. So we have a roving mic, and if you can um, wave at me, I'll try and get the mic to you. So there, is, there are two questions in that middle row two rows there, if you can get those. So in the flower, the flower, red flower top and behind in the plaid. Great. Hi. Okay, good. You can hear me. Um, so we spoke a little bit about kind of uh, social inequality um, and manifesting in education already as we see it. And we see all over the world kind of a lot of places where education is being restricted to, or at least good education is being restricted to wealthier people, and wealthier people want to keep that good education for themselves. And this is kind of propagating, you know, inequality all over the world, which is getting worse as time goes on. So with this kind of um, uh, genetic engineering and medical engineering to make people better and stronger and closer to this perfect human being, how do we change kind of society's attitude towards this without just 
wealthy keeping it to themselves and for them to get better and better and better and for inequality all over the world to just keep getting bigger and bigger. And um, to put on that, we, you spoke about how we know education is a public good. The more people educated, the better it is for the whole world. And in this, in the same way, the more people that are healthier or happier, it's better for the whole world. But people seem to want to keep these type of things to themselves. And how do we deal with that? Yeah, and let's get the other question. I don't think there's a pill for that, but we'll get, a, we'll get an answer to that in a moment. The other question? What significance sort of do you think the, how, the promise to not play God in the Hippocratic Oath, does that take on a, a new or enhanced meaning when you have so many kind of advance, advances available? Great. Two great questions. Any takers? Uh, I mean, education just isn't a zero-sum game. It, the fact that there are more educated people doesn't stop. I mean, I, it seems to me extraordinary that anybody would think that other people being educated was a bad thing. And uh, maybe we need to t give them some pill to make them more moral in order to... Uh, <laughs> if people do think that, it just seems such a bizarre thing to think. It's, um... Could I just ask you there on yeah. that, though? High levels of education, right? So, like, yeah. Oh, right. But just to come back, isn't there an issue here about there's educational products and there's education, and there's a vast increase in educational products, but we figure at the same time we're losing getting people to engage in things and think rather than just getting the product from the teacher and passing the exam in order to get the job. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And that's the thing we seem to be losing. While there's an increase in the educational products, we seem to be losing genuine education. Now, it's, that's... I think, that's, I think that's right. I mean, I think pressure to see students as consumers and customers is all part of that, to see it as something that, you, you're, that students are buying a, a degree with a number attached rather than um, being educated, which is obviously a much bigger thing than just coming out with a number. Yeah. I, I think that question was sort of yeah. heading to you, Richard, in a way, that how do you get people to not just share access to the good drugs or the great technology, but to share benevolence, right, and well-being? How do you engineer that? <laughs> Public libraries would be a good start. So there is the, 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 so when I grew up, there, there were good public libraries which everybody could use. And I know that some people think that's what the internet provides, but uh, it isn't. Um, you can get it quite a lot via the internet, but you can't get a well-curated, well-stocked library. You don't get librarians whose job it is to help you find things that you might find useful or interesting. Uh, you don't have a social space where you can meet people and uh, enjoy participating in education just because it's interesting and rewarding, not because it leads to a qualification. Uh, which is why things like this are good, right? This is free, you're all here. Thank you for coming on a Saturday morning. Um, more of this kind of thing would be a good thing. Yeah, we, we endorse that at the forum. Uh, go on, David. Just quick. Isn't this about top-down and bottom-up to a degree. We were subjects, we briefly became citizens, we're now consumers, and somehow we need to get back to being citizens. And part of the debate's complicated because what I've been saying is there was a subset of uh, at the citizen group who were patients, who people during the 1980s began to redefine as consumers also, but in actual fact, they're not. But I mean, it's how to get back to government from the bottom up, from us up, rather than being told what the apparatus says we have to have. Yeah. And what about this other question about, this is a really good question, I think, what renewed significance does that, that, that Hippocratic oath have to this pledge to promise not to play God 
in our brave new world? It's been many years. You know, if you think somebody who taught medical ethics for a living would be reading the Hippocratic Oath pretty regularly. Um, unfortunately <laughs> not. But I don't think there's a line in it about not playing God. However, there is the line in it about doing no harm, and that seems to me absolutely central here. There is a debate about what the relationship is between obligations to do good and obligations to avoid doing harm, which touches a lot on what David has been saying. But let's take the playing God thing. Um, there is a sense of the tremendous power we may be unleashing with these technologies and whether we are up to it. Um, and the way we think about how uneasy that makes us, I think, is actually quite useful in controlling what one might call the solutionist mindset, where to every, to every difficulty in life, we can define it as a problem and work, work out a solution for it. Um, so I'm sympathetic to the question. That there's, a, there's a big philosophical literature on whether the idea of playing God is actually coherent, um, which I will just gesture at. I'm not <laughs> going to set it out for you. But um, I, I, I think the unease is, is not only intellectually productive, but also socially useful. Emily, Emily, did you want to... Yes, okay. Okay, just to pick up um, you know, the playing God issue, I don't think it's there either, but uh, I didn't... When I made my opening pitch about we poison and mutilate, I didn't draw out the ethical undertow there, which is doctors, our, our traditional medicine does evil. We are evildoers. We do evil in order to do good. We take a risk that we're going to kill you. I mean, if you were saying first do no harm, there wouldn't be modern medicine. The problem is a lot of doctors in this whole debate forget that what they're doing is they're poisoning and mutilating. And they particularly forget when they're putting you on the sixth pill that, you know, putting you on six poisons about which the entire literature is ghostwritten, and they've got a responsibility, they should have a responsibility for not choosing stuff when the literature is ghostwritten and there's no access to the data. I mean, the people, the interesting figure in all this is, you know, the playing God figure, the doctor who is a pretty pathetic human being for the most part. Some of them are very nice people. When you meet them, they're very friendly. But as a profession, we have been limp. Can I just say one thing in relation to this playing God, which comes back to something you said, uh, Sheila, about, about the importance of care, which I think is, is really critical here. So in relation to um, care of the dying patient, um, there's a huge tendency to over-treat people who are dying, to keep giving them um, medicines <clears> and treat, keep trying to save their lives when actually, when somebody is at the end of life, they need something rather different. And a few years ago, I was involved in a review of care of the, the dying. And what became apparent is that in part of um, medical training, the how to talk to people, patients and their families, about the fact that death is near was something that in the whole years and years of medical training was, took place one afternoon and was easy to miss. And yet, 
care of people who are dying is core business for almost every doctor will encounter it and we should put a lot more effort into talking to people about what's going to happen so people know what to expect because dying isn't part of life in the same way as, as perhaps it used to be. So I think it's important in the do no harm that we're not just focusing on do no harm in terms of um, how one normally thinks of that but also do no harm in terms of it's not just about medicine it's also about caring for people uh, and, and, and that is really really important too. Richard wanted to Yeah there's something about this which is really central um, which is a social observation that uh, if we're thinking about death and now the centrality of, of medical attention uh, or medical care in death, it's partly because we now load a lot of social responsibility onto doctors, which was formerly taken up by other people, be it the family or the clergy or whoever. And this ties to the bio-utopia idea. In a sense, where we look for social hope is in medicine and the life sciences because it's almost the last profession that we trust. Mm -hmm. That's my experience talking to doctors that, that I know often that they're, a great deal of their work is care, is doing the social care that mm. has fallen through the gaps of the, the agencies that ought to have been responsible perhaps. David, you had want something to say and then I'll go just, back to you. Yes, just on the theme of um, um, end of life care uh, and I'm com completely with both Emily uh, and also Richard on this, which is we pile pills into people and we often kill them prematurely or wreck their final years. One of the interesting just possible bio-utopia ways forward here that has come on the radar during the last 10 years or so is giving psilocybin to people who are dying. Okay? A lot of people who have been horribly anxious and can't reconcile with actually dying, taking psilocybin often get a lot more relaxed, get a lot more uh, accepting of the fact that they're going to die and jettison all the other pills that they're on are able to relate to their friends and family. And this looks great. And it is a good thing, but one of the interesting things that I've often found about this, and it hopefully, again, brings out you know, the ambiguities, yeah, most of uh, the therapists who give psilocybin to people uh, who are at end of life and things like that have had it themselves and they think it's a great thing. It opens up the universe. It changes the way you view the world. It gives you a sense of where our ideas of God may have come from and things like that. One of the awfully interesting things about all these people is you, get the, you ask them to, if you're less anxious, if you're more reconciled with the world now, could you help me talk up about the adverse effects of SSRIs or maybe the statins or things like this? And they run a mile. They're just, they, they aren't chilled out. They aren't reconciled with the universe in the way they like to think they are. So there are interesting ambiguities here, shall we say. Yeah, we've provided one of those pills in your goodie bags. <laughs> later. Um, uh, let's get some more audience questions. Um, so uh, we're at the back there. Let, why don't we get the back row? Let's, so there are two, three questions in that back corner. We'll get those in. Hello. Um, if hypothetically we were able to enhance human life such that we're able to live forever, um, at what stage do we decide that this is enough? Um, isn't isn't the fact that life is finite, it, doesn't that give us the opportunity to make some meaning out of life? Um, when is it that we, you know, we suddenly will decide to realize that you know, we don't want to retire at 100 
um, that you know, we're no less miserable than we were hundreds of years ago. Great. A question along, there was a question, or further down. Uh, thank you, David. Um, thank you very much as well for highlighting the role of how so many psychoactive drugs are going to be reconceptualized in our society, especially within this concept of how we can actually accommodate for them in, in today's world. But um, uh, also moving on from this point, it's interesting to see how, for example, the, the, the concept of pain has been adopted throughout the medical care, you know, uh, I've had family members that the last 15 years of their existence has been very troubled because of pain and having to deal with that and how it is very disability, uh, debilitating for the rest of their lives. So why has this been so understudied? Why do people have to live in such an extended life, their last 20 years in pain and in so many critical conditions? Great, and there's one just below you. Yeah, great. Uh, good afternoon to the chair and the panelists. My question is, um, since we've been talking much about the existing uh, sort of allopathic medical uh, uh, system that exists, uh, where does the, uh, where do the, the alternative medicine, uh, alternative medicines come into play in this whole scenario? I mean, um, there are essentially two sides of the debate where uh, first-hand or uh, even second-hand users claim to having benefited from these uh, medicines, but then on the other side, there exists a, a great body of knowledge which says that it is essentially all hogwash. So, um, is, could we like devise some sort of a catechism through which we could assess the um, the merits and demerits of uh, alternative medicine? And if yes, could we bring it into the mainstream? Right. Okay. So that was: um, Do we want to live forever? Why do we have to live in pain? And then alternative medicines. Any takers? Well, you could put the first two questions together, and you could live forever in pain. Um, <laughs> kind of answers the first question, almost. Um, I mean, the pain question is really, really interesting, right? Because it's, it's certainly something I think there is a quite a big consensus on, that pain is, is understudied, that pain is not well understood in a lot, lot of cases, that if you want to use... If you want to understand uh, racial and gender discrimination in healthcare, look at how pain is studied in different ethnic groups and, and across the genders. Male pain, male, white male pain is taken more seriously, by and large. Um, women's pain is some sort of thing, oh, get over it, you know, that's just part of your life, you know. So, um, so there, it's a fascinating lens for making sense of, of, of the social phenomena around medicine. Uh, we have the debate about the opioid epidemic, um, and so on and so on. So I, I would agree that it should be, should be better studied. And the, 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 but there's both the medical aspects of it and also the social aspects of it. What does pain mean? Why do some people experience pain more than others? What is it about their lives that leads to pain? So arthritis is arthritis, but it is also something that you're more likely to develop if you're in certain occupational groups and so forth. Um, yeah, as to living forever. I think what the interesting thing about living forever is that most people don't want to live forever, they just want to live longer. And even the very old, <clears throat> although some people get to the point and say, I've lived long enough now and, and, uh, and embrace death, 
in many cases, the people who are very old are not discontent with their lives day to day and wouldn't want to die just this minute, but soon would be okay. Um, and uh, I think that's, that's, in a sense, that horizon, having a horizon on your life, is one way we give it a structure and meaning. You take that horizon away, and it becomes, it becomes unimaginable what I am supposed to do next. David, can I throw the alternative medicines question to you? Yeah, sure. Um, I come at this from the point of view of you know, the medicine we had from the 1840s through to the 1980s is, I mean, and I don't mean doctors giving you pills. I think the overall public health and general medical framework and recognition that you know, we need to try and understand what's causing disease is what's contributed to, to the life expectancy we have. Homeopathy hasn't, complementary medicine hasn't, Ayurvedic medicine hasn't. There may be good things and nice things that these do, and certainly there may be things that have been lost from current medical practice uh, that these things have that we should get back into medical practice. And there's a lot of bad current medical practice that's going badly wrong now, so we're losing life expectancy. But at the end of the day, medicine has, not doctors, medicine has made major contributions, and I think you need to recognize that. In terms of the living longer bit, a little bit of the issue here is, I mean, we all, I mean, it seems, it always throws up the question of disease. And I don't mean disease in the sense of having a heart attack or stroke. I mean just unease with yourself. That's the ultimate issue that's behind all this. As regards pain, uh, the single commonest drug that has been used here in this room is a painkiller. 50% of you know, the population who are elderly are on one or more painkillers. There are tons of different kinds of painkillers. When people are in pain, it's probably the single greatest contributor to polypharmacy in the sense of your doctor will pile painkillers on top of painkillers on top of painkillers. And, you know, it's one of these things, a lot of our pills like the anxiolytics and the opioids and things like that can be tremendous short-term fixes but can cause the problem that they become the treatment for when given longer. So again, we get back to the issue about a person may, having the discretion to know when not to go down this route or when to stop going down this route. That's the kind of thing that often each of us can't do on our own. We need others to help us. It used to be a doctor was a great help, but almost the last person these days you want to go to is a doctor because they're just going to give you more pills. We need to find other ways to restore discretion into people's lives. Let's get one more round of questions in at least, I think. Um, so, wave vigorously at me. In the middle row there, uh, uh, and, uh, and oh, the pink there, right where you are, on your right, left-hand side, or, or your right, pink there, and then we'll come down to the middle row. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm a doctor. Sorry, everyone. I don't think you've got very good press. But <laughs> I think what you've raised some really interesting points, especially about how we need to maybe step back from medicines and think about maybe other ways that we can treat patients, especially with things like pain. Um, I think the problem with this brave new world is exactly as you say, we're looking forward. And actually, how do you think that we can get medics and pharma and uh, 
things like Public Health England to look backwards and think more about lifestyle-related therapies like exercise, diet, and actually as just modifying our lives. And is that something that actually society wants? And how can we make that something that society wants? Great. Because actually a pill might just be easier. Great, lovely to hear from you. And then in the middle there, yes, that the, in the gentleman in the pink. Keep going down. Two more rows down. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Um, if we were at a conference of creationists, we'd probably think that uh, germline gene editing was playing God. Well, we're not at a conference of creationists. There is a moratorium, as discussed in Nature, Nature Biotech. What's the panel's view on that moratorium? Is it viable? Okay. Two, la two big stunning questions. Could I take the first one? Yes. Um, so one of the things I think is really interesting about, about, certainly in the UK, the sustainability of the NHS is it's only really going to be sustainable if we control demand for services. And, and there are all sorts of interesting initiatives to do this. And one that... Um, I mention this because I suppose I'm a lawyer, but I think quite there's some, there's some really interesting and innovative studies about um, trying to think about um, the sources of a person's problem rather than treating the symptoms. So just as an example, if somebody goes to see their doctor with respiratory problems because they're living in a damp house, um, they have a legal problem. Giving them pills for their respiratory problem isn't the solution. You need to deal with their landlord and the fact that they're living in a damp house. So what they might need, rather than a prescription is to have a lawyer down the corridor who can try to sort out their problem with their landlord. Similarly, if they're depressed because they've got um, problems at work, they might have an employment law dispute that needs to be sort sorted out, or they might have relationship difficulties where they need a family lawyer to try and help them. So I'm not saying all solutions are solved in that way, but I think the idea that, that if you've got a damp house, you treat... You, you really need to get rid of the damp problem, and that isn't necessarily something a doctor can do, um, is, is really important. So we need to, I mean, it's part of the whole sort of social prescribing, the idea that sometimes it really, really isn't a, a medical problem that people have. It's a social issue which needs another sort of solution. David and then Richard to close. Yeah, just, um, I think... Um one of the things that may come out of this debate a little bit is the question of sustainability, which is the word that was uh, just uh, introduced there. In terms of global climate change, uh, as sustainability sounds to lots of people like we've been asked to give things up. You know, you can't drive your car, you can't do this, you can't do that. Things are being rationed. One of the nice things about healthcare, which it, I mean, and healthcare as opposed to health services, is it's much more focused on what do you cherish and what do you want to hang on to and how do we help you do that? Uh, we're at a place where people are getting tons more services thrown at them and the issue isn't about accepting all these services. You don't gain. We're reducing your life expectancy and we're changing the climate in healthcare as we do so and it's become quite toxic for people working in healthcare. We risk losing the NHS. Fixes are great. A gun is great, but there's a limit to efficacy, and we reach it with the nuclear bomb. You can't deploy it. In the same way, a fix at the right time in the right place can be given for free. You can restore people to a state where they're more functional uh, and things like that, and you could deliver the NHS for free, provided we're doing things that work. Once we multiply things up, as opposed to putting a plate in my bone, which gets me back to work if I've got a, if I've got a broken femur, or 
thigh or whatever it is in this case, uh, when I go along and I get bone scan and there's a little bit of bone thinning and I get persuaded to take a drug like a this phosphonate, which does thicken up bones, but at a cost of increasing the risk of me having a fracture, that's the kind of thing that's bankrupting the NHS and generally bankrupting healthcare generally. Richard, just a minute. Um, three quick thoughts. One is um, there's this fascinating uh, theory around so-called stratified medicine, precision medicine, personalized medicine, and I can imagine that that sort of person might be saying certain things to David at this point, but I, I find that an almost fantastical imaginary for medicine, but, but one that's being promoted very aggressively at the moment. Uh, in answer to the upstream things to do to make people live healthier, happier lives without needing direct medical care. Everything Emily says is true, but the other thing that I like to point to people is school playing fields. People should be able to go outside, children should be able to go outside and play in the open air in a nice green space. We sold them off in vast quantities and we also obsess about organized sports. Most of us don't like organized sport. I hate organized sport. <laughs> they made me miserable. But once I was able just to enjoy physical activity as a kind of play, that was great. So we maybe ought to live more playful lives. Now, moratoria. Some moratoria work really well. We have a small group of in uh, of experts who are all working on the field and collectively agree, right, we're not going to pr prosecute this line of inquiry right now. And I am reasonably optimistic that that can work for some things like certain kinds of bio-warfare development and certain kinds of hostile artificial intelligence. But it's a big international relations problem. You will always find people willing to defect from the moratorium and how we deal with that. So the he case is really interesting because here is a guy who wanted to do something in genome editing in embryos. He thought it was a useful and interesting thing to do. And he thought he'd got bioethical advice. And he thought he'd got a consent form that was, put it bluntly, going to cover his back. And where he fell down was to do it and then to talk about it in public in a way that brought embarrassment to the Chinese state. It, and the Chinese state cannot stand embarrassment. It's a, a remarkable story and um, you can look it up. I have to, I know you, we decided that we don't want to live forever, but we do want this discussion to go on forever. I think we can agree. Um, can I encourage you to join me in thanking Richard Ashcroft, Emily Jackson and David Hughes. <laughs>